So this morning, uh, we are parachuting into the middle of the Old Testament, which might be really scary for some of you. Um, 1 Samuel 25, verses 2 through 42, it's also a lot of verses. And so I'm going to ask for your patience as I read through our text this morning. But to give you a little bit of context, to give you a little bit of a picture of what's going on in our text this morning, uh, 1 Samuel is the book immediately following the period of the Judges. Um, the judges were a season uh, in which Israel um, was without king, uh, and there was a constant refrain that they did what was right in their own eyes. And so you, you reach the book of 1 Samuel, Samuel's the last judge of Israel, and uh, the people of Israel are, are hollering, they're clamoring for a king just like the rest of the nations. And so Samuel goes before the Lord, and, and, and God gives Israel the desire of, of their hearts. Uh, he gives them a king. And in 1 Samuel 10, we see uh, Saul anointed as the first king of Israel. And it's only five chapters later in 1 Samuel 15 that we see Saul um, not do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Not lead God's people uh, as a godly king. And so the chapter to immediately follow is the uh, anointment of uh, the king who is to come, uh, David the shepherd boy. And then the, the famous scene plays out in 1 Samuel 17 between David and Goliath, right? David slays Goliath. The ensuing chapters, the people of Israel are hollering that uh, Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. It's looking more and more like David is the king that God's people want. Um, and Saul, that doesn't hit Saul too rightly. And so there's kind of a narrative, a drama that plays out for a few chapters between Saul and David. As Saul is out to kill David. Uh, and then we, we reach this little reprieve in chapter 25. Uh, it's kind of a random scene if you're reading through 1 Samuel. Uh, you don't really know what's going on. Um, but it's a particularly interesting chapter for our family in particular because we named our daughter Abigail. And we are going to come across uh, a character named Abigail this morning. So with that said, uh, let me read from God's word beginning in verse 2 of chapter 25. Encourage you, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, it might be helpful. This is the English Standard Version. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come come from I do not know where? 
So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 4,000 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master. And he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against us, or against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sihas of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on the donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. And she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all these fellow, all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me for evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving you and from saving with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince over Israel... My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pains of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, 
and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like a feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Wow. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, that is um, a really long text. Um, Thank you for your word, that uh, it is sufficient. You do give us good and helpful details, but if we're being honest with ourselves, um, a lot of us probably tuned out. Uh, I know even for me, it's it's weary to read a long text like that. And so I pray as we uh, come to the application of your word, um, as we come to hear and sit under it, that uh, again, you would be here, Holy Spirit, to massage what is true about the gospel into our hearts and into our lives. It's in your name I pray. Amen. The year is 2005. Mariah Carey's We Belong Together was number one on the Billboard Top 100 Hits. Star Wars Revenge of the Sith was selling out in box offices everywhere. I think Michigan football even managed to beat Michigan State and Indiana that year. For my 13-year-old self, uh, nothing in the world is more important that summer than winning the game of Risk, the board game of Risk. For those of you unfamiliar with Risk, it's simply the most epic board game around. It involves conflict and conquest. I mean, what more could you want out of a teenage guy? Uh, My friends and I would stay up every night that summer until like 3 a.m. We would argue, we would bicker, um, and nothing in the world got me more fired up than getting betrayed on the risk board. You make these alliances, and then someone backstabs you. They go for Australia. They go for Asia. In these gut-wrenching moments, I would no longer care about winning the game. The game was pointless at that point. All that mattered was showing the guy who betrayed Robert Knuth that he was done for. You never crossed Robert Knuth. Um, And at the heart of our text this morning, we see in David the heart of a 13-year-old Robert Knuth. We see a man who's willing to lose the game in order to seek vengeance on someone who has now turned his back on him. In David's case, even though verse 2 says that Nabal was very rich, Nabal refuses to offer any of it to David and his men. And verse 7 indicates that David had willingly protected this man and his wealth from enemy invasion. David had done this, this, this rich man a, a service. From David's perspective, it seems like the least Nabal could do was to throw him a bone. To throw him something. Thank you. Needless to say, uh, Nabal's refusal and, and mockery infuriates David. It infuriates him so much 
that he has his men draw their swords ready to do battle with this adversary. I mean, it seems a little extreme for maybe, I don't know, 21st century enlightened folks. We read this and we go, David, what are you doing? But this morning, I want us to behold how God in his providence, he restrains the extent of David's anger. He restrains it to accomplish the purposes that God has for David. And so specifically, I want us to see that by intervening, intervening with the wise counsel of Abigail, God displays David's foolishness. But even more importantly, he illustrates the depths of his sustaining grace for David. Because vengeance is truly the Lord's, Christians can rest. You can rest this morning if you're in Christ in the fact that God, that God not only fights for you, but he also blesses you despite your blindness and disbelief. And so we see this through, through three points this morning. First, God's restraint of David. Second, God's wisdom to David. And lastly, God's vengeance for David. I'm going to just repeat this one more time. God's restraint of David, God's wisdom to David, and God's vengeance for David. My first point actually begins a chapter earlier. You guys are like, oh man, more text. First um, Samuel 24, verses 4 through 7 Saul, King Saul stumbles upon David in this cave. It's kind of a, a, a grotesque, like, crude scene, to be honest. Um, and verse 4 shows David uh, actually cutting off the corner of Saul's robe. Uh, just picking up real, really quickly in verse 4, um, it says, And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord has said, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. If you've been tracking the, the drama, like I kind of explained at, at the start between King Saul and David up to this point, you understand just how tense things are, right? Like, this is the latest narrative. This is the latest episode. And it almost seems like this is David's golden moment. I mean, like, his men say as much. David, this is, this is the moment that God's been promising. You can, you can kill Saul. You can take over the kingship. This is, this is yours. So this is finally his layup. And, and, and what happens? He... He swings and misses? Why why does he not kill Saul? Verse 5 notes that afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So just even like getting a little sliver off of Saul's Saul's wardrobe, Saul's attire, causes David's heart heart to strike him. And this is like a very Hebrew idiom. Uh, We don't say this in our modern day uh, syntax or, or language. And so if you look at the Hebrew, I think it actually comes more to life. Uh, first off, in Hebrew, heart conveys a lot more than just arteries and veins. It is the very inner man and will of a person. So for David's heart to strike him is significant because it conveys a, a change of his entire worldview. Everything about David changes when his heart is struck. Uh, but secondly, it's important to note that this verb, the actual kind of like form that this verb is in, is, is a causative verb. 
And you guys are going, oh man, I don't want an English lesson. But, but that's important, right? Because uh, it means that this verb causes something else to happen. It's like the first domino to fall, which causes others to follow suit. And so when David's heart is struck, when, when David's heart struck him, some outside causation comes upon David to change his inner man, to change his will. Otherwise, he no doubt kills Saul. He has such a change of heart towards Saul that he eventually declares, 10 verses later, May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Whoa! Here you have a man who is like actually taking action. He cuts off a corner of Saul's robe, and then 10 verses later says, Nope, vengeance is the Lord's. Hands off. It seems like a heart change. It seems like a worldview change. Uh, In other words, uh, David believes that Yahweh will have vengeance on Saul in the same way that Yahweh had vengeance on Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. However, David believes this only because God supernaturally is able to change his inner man by grace, right? Like, the only outside causation coming upon David is something supernatural, something spiritual. Every part of David's flesh wants to kill Saul. And wouldn't you? The kingship is right there. And this guy's been trying to kill you. If This is modern day, right? Like, you could just claim self-defense. Every part of David's natural state does not want to wait upon the Lord. He, like you and me, wants what he wants, and he wants it now. It's not just a 21st century thing. If you fast forward to our text this morning, not much has, has changed for David. He is still on the run, and this time in desperate need of food. He's moved beyond his, like, cave dwelling, like Neanderthal, and now he's in the presence of this really rich man, and he's hungry. And because he comes across Nabal, who was very rich, he expects that his needs will just easily be met through this man's abundance. I mean, this man doesn't even have to really offer him that much. Just a bone, just something, something to tide him over. He's really hungry. And so Nabal's sarcastic response to David's plea for food in chapter 25, verse 10, doesn't do well to smooth over relations. I mean, does anybody get hangry? I I actually call it quangry because I get really quiet, hungry, you know. Um, David's, he's pretty hangry. Um, and Nabal responds in verse 10 by saying, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. The reality is, Nabal knew exactly who David is because his wife, in verses 28 through 31, makes extensive comment about David's past victories. If you can imagine just word spreading throughout the land. King David slays Goliath, but then goes on to kill not just thousands, but tens of thousands. And here you have this pretty prominent man who's like, who's David? Silly. It's sarcastic. He's making a mockery of David. I don't know uh, how many of you have heard about the Fire Festival. Uh, if you haven't, this was, it was supposed to be the next big music festival. This is back in like 2018. Um, dozens of you know the hottest artists and bands were going to perform on this private island in the Bahamas. VIP guests were going to have access to private villas and pools, and tickets were going to you know be sold for a relatively reasonable rate of twelve thousand dollars a person. Um, something like Bonnaroo, if you're familiar with that, but like on steroids. 
Um, well, in, in March 2018, to be precise, news got out that the chief organizer, Billy McFarland, and rapper Ja Rule, they didn't have anything remotely planned that resembled, that resembled this event. It was, all, it was all a scheme. It was all a ploy. It was fake news, quite literally. What was supposed to be the most exclusive party of the ages became a nightmare for the thousands of wealthy people who could afford the ticket. As news began to to leak out that these people weren't staying in sleek villas, um, but FEMA tents, social media had a heyday. One one tweet read, quote, At home watching rich people get scammed to see what it feels like to be a refugee and live in subhuman conditions at the hashtag fire festival. End quote. Just like thousands of Americans relish the opportunity to see people of privilege in dire straits, Nabal uses his elevated status over the anointed one of Israel to throw shade, to make himself kind of feel loftier than he is. And so David's response is pretty quick and to the point in verse 13. There's no fluff to David's response. He says, Every man strap on a sword. We're doing it. So we're going to take this outside. Less than a chapter after David's miraculous change of heart toward his most dreaded enemy, here you have this no-name, Nabal. Here we find David enraged to the point with this random stranger that he's willing to shed his blood. To be honest, I kind of find David's change of tone striking. The cynical side of me really wonders if David truly ever had a change of heart in, in chapter 24. The cynical side of me really wonders if God intervened to do anything at all to David. Do you find yourself in the same place this morning? Maybe if you're a Christian, do you wonder if your faith in the God of the Bible has really done anything to change you? Or maybe you're a skeptic. And this is, this is exactly why you aren't a Christian. Because you read the Bible and you're like, people aren't changing This is all fluff. It's because so much of your Christian friends and family's perceived change of heart seems short-lived and not exactly the transformation you or them were hoping to see. I think fortunately for David, but also for us, uh, God intervenes again in verse 14 to show us more of how he's at work in the situation. God's not done with David. This leads me to my second point, which is God's wisdom to David. Wisdom, in this case, comes through the most unlikely of characters. It comes through a no-name servant. We literally don't know his name, which I I find very interesting. Details that are left out. Um, But then the wife of Nabal. And so first it should be clarified that the no-name servant is actually one of Nabal's men. He's He's a hired hand. He's been working on Nabal's estate. And so it's obvious from verses 14 through 17 that he was present when David's servants asked for food from Nabal. He's like a witness to this incident. In other words, he's nothing more than an innocent bystander who God uses to communicate the injustice done against God's beloved, King David. But second, the wife of Nabal, she's not just any woman. The text introduces us to her early on in verse 3 as Abigail, the wife of Nabal. She is described as discerning and beautiful. And that's in contrast to her husband who is harsh and badly behaved. Which, side note, is kind of a hilarious picture. This, this is 
This is where, um, the, again, not to sound like a, a snooty, like, seminary guy, but, like, the, the Hebrew really, like, makes this just hilarious. Uh, because, on the one hand, you have Abigail, who is discerning and beautiful. Her name in Hebrew means, my father's delight. And then, on the other hand, you have her husband, Nabal, whose name in Hebrew literally, quite literally means fool. means fool. <laughs> um, and so, for context, anytime the text gives us someone's name... It's significant for two reasons. One, it it helps validate the eyewitness testimony of the Bible. It's especially true in the New Testament as well. Uh, But two, in Hebrew, most of the time, a person's name is actually indicative of the type of person they are. You see this in the early accounts of Genesis. Um, Seth, after, after Abel is killed, Seth means substitute. He's the substitute for his brother. The examples go on and on. So knowing what we know about Abigail, the hope that this no-name servant has is that somehow, even though his master is a fool, his reasonable wife, Abigail, can quickly intervene to prevent everybody's destruction. Like, please do something. Because Nabal isn't. His pride will keep him from doing something. And so that's why it's no surprise that in verse 18, we see that Abigail made haste. So the text says, Abigail made haste to emphatically prepare provisions for David and his men. She's got to do it all by herself. Her husband's worthless. And so besides her effort to right the wrong done by Nabal, she arrives on the, uh, upon the scene of David's temper tantrum. I mean, let's just call a spade a spade. It's a temper tantrum. To immediately become the scapegoat for her husband. Which, I just love the Bible, y'all, because you have to think about the context upon which this is written. This is... A thousand years before Jesus entered the scene. How were women seen? The woman is the hero of this text. The Bible has to be God's word, because why why on earth would the author of this text portray the woman as a hero? It would be, it would be crippling. That's not a way to get rich quickly in this age. Um, but Abigail's motivation is it's simple. By intending to take the blame for Nabal, she hopes to explicitly demonstrate to David that he can hardly kill a woman for for bowing down before him, who has brought him food and drink, and also speaks about how God has prevented him from bloodshed. I think if you put it that way, she seeks to give David godly perspective and to remind him of what is true. She, in this selfless manner, embodies God's word to David. She's the physical embodiment of God's word. She's the Proverbs 31 woman who, quote, opens her mouth with wisdom, having teaching of kindness on her tongue. Friends, the reality is, on this side of heaven, we're all going to be like David. No matter how much God has transformed you by his grace this morning, you will 100% encounter a moment where you react or think or speak like your old self, like the person you were before Christ. If you have kids, I know you know exactly what I'm talking about. But even if you don't, how many of us have had like this despairing thought of, I thought I was a Christian. Christians don't think or do or say this type of thing. You thought God had changed you by his grace. And now you feel like you were back at square one. You feel like showing up to church a waste of time. It's in those moments, though, that God meets you and me again to show us, to remind us, 
to once again change us back into the people that we've now become through faith in Jesus. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3, 9 and 10, he says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You know what's interesting about those two verses? Paul uses the past tense to describe your old self. You have put off the old self. It is dead, it is done, it is, it is in the past. And then what, what does he say about the new self? He says, put on the new self, which is being renewed. Present tense, actively ongoing. There's this ever-present change going on in God's people by his grace. But fundamentally what is true is that you are never your old self again. You are never your old self again. And that's all Abigail is to David. She's a friend who is hoping to do one thing for him. One thing. She's a friend who is there to display what is true in hopes that he might see the foolishness out of which he is living. That, in, in hopes that he might see that he is living in a way that is not him anymore. It's, it's Jekyll. It's not him. He's Hyde. I think that's right. She's hoping to be truth for him. She knows she can't fix him. She knows she can't change his heart. She knows she is powerless. But she does whatever it takes to physically display the grace and kindness of her Father in heaven toward him. She does whatever it takes. And stakes are pretty high. David's going to cut off heads tomorrow morning. She shows him dignity and respect. She offers him hospitality. And lastly, she opens her mouth to speak the truth about God and the truth about his work to transform David. Do you have a friend like that? One who is willing to do whatever it takes in life for you to better see and better behold the God of grace who has the power to change hearts. I think one of the reasons this scene is so beautiful to me is is because you have to imagine that this isn't Abigail's first rodeo. This isn't the first time she's done this for a man. Her husband is literally named Fool. But whereas Nabal doesn't have a heart to receive the truth about who God is, and any hope of transformation, David does. David does. I think a little window into maybe what's implicitly kind of there in the text is that I think that should help guide our friendships. Not, not only kind of the question, because this could sound shamey, right? Do you have a friend like that? I think a lot of us, if we're being honest, would probably answer no. I don't. Oh, what do I do? But I think, I think a little window into who Abigail is should help Give us wisdom at the types of friendships we, sh- we should be pursuing. The types of spouses we should be pursuing. Right? We want spouses, we want friends who are going to receive this, this display of grace. This pursuit of someone's heart. With the hope, with the, with the confidence that this person that I am pursuing, this person that I am displaying grace to, actually has a heart that is going to be changed by the grace of God. And that's not to say someone's heart can't, right? We serve a God who is sovereign, who is at work, who comes after the the least of us, right? But I think wisdom says, hey, if I'm going to marry you, right? Like if we're going to do deep friendship together, I'm going to need you to speak truth into my life because my heart's wayward. 
In 1 Samuel 24, God supernaturally intervenes to strike David, to strike his heart, to strike his will, right, in the Hebrew, to strike his inner man. And so less than a chapter later, God intervenes again. But this time he does so through ordinary, interpersonal relationships. Relationships. In Abigail, God's grace lies prostrated before David. Right in front of his eyes. That's God's grace for him. This time God has David physically behold the foolishness of his initial interaction. His initial reaction. So that David might more tangibly taste and grasp God's grace toward him. I mean, how many of y'all, yeah, have had like a friend or, or somebody come up to you and, and just through their kindness, it kind of makes you feel silly for reacting the way you did. It kind of makes you feel like, what did I just do? Why did I just say that? That's not what I meant. It's kind of what's going on here. It only makes sense then for David uh, to praise God in verse 32. He cries out, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to me. David praises the providence of God, not even knowing the full extent of it. He praises God before God really kind of does anything. What do I mean by that? Well, it leads me to my last point, which is God's vengeance for David. As much as God has showered David up to this point by grace to restrain his sin, grace upon grace, there's still no justice for David. His enemies have still gotten the best of him. He's filled with so much anguish at the lack of justice that he actually writes uh, Psalm 13, kind of during this time. Listen to what Psalm 13 says. He says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? It's almost like he's saying, like, God, thank you for meeting me in this time. I know you're with me. I know you love me, but... I still, as I still take in the world, there is injustice taking place, and it eats at me. How long must I withstand the tension of seeing the wicked prosper, of seeing my enemies exalt over me? And so the tension is that even as David rejoices in the, in the grace that God's shown toward him, no one w- would deny that, he yearns for God to have vengeance on his enemies once and for all. He's tired of running. He's tired of waiting for God to do something. He's flat out tired. And I think if a lot of us are being honest, that's where, that's where we are this morning. We're tired. Whatever like, your injustice kind of um, you know, drum like, you like to beat. Right? There's a lot of them out in the world. You're tired of seeing that continue to happen. Whatever that is. Yet in the middle of David's exhaustion... That God works not only to lavish David in his love, um, in the middle of David's exhaustion that, that, that God is at work to, to show him grace, um, God is also at work to destroy those who seek David's harm. Verses 36 through 38 catalog immediately what happens after Abigail flees to stop David from lashing out against Nabal. You remember, she, she returns home to her husband. He's, he's laying there, he's pretty drunk. He doesn't really have, he normally doesn't have the ears to hear her, but especially not then. Um, but she returns home and she eventually updates him on, on David's decision not to attack. That she's, she's, she's done it. She's, you know, saved thousands of lives, including his. And picking up in verse 37, it reads, His, you know, Nabal's heart 
died within him. And he became his stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal. And he died. Whew! That's pretty intense. And yes, this literally happened. Because the Bible is true. No less than a few days after God showers David with grace through Abigail, he proceeds to accomplish justice by striking dead David's enemy, Nabal. God has done it. Imagine that. God has fulfilled his promises to David. Um, And it's only six chapters later that in 1 Samuel 31 that the Lord eventually defeats Saul as well. It's not just Nabal, but it's King Saul who's actively out to kill David. God's grace is never accompanied without his justice. We don't just have a God who is love, but not a God who is filled with wrath. We don't have a God who is just wrathful and just out to get you, but who is also not loving. How do those two coexist? How do those two preside in the same breath? The theologian John Newton, a lot of you guys might know his hymn, Amazing Grace. Well, he wrote another famous hymn, and my, my REF students might, might know it. Uh, it's called Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. Let us wonder grace and justice. Join and point to mercy store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. Justice asks no more. Why? Because we have put our faith in Christ. Despite how much David failed to remain faithful when taunted by his enemies, despite how much he throws these temper tantrums, there was another anointed one who properly stood against the enemy's revilings. As God's enemies mocked him and spit on him and created a a crown of thorns for him, as he hung out naked and ashamed, the author of the Hebrews invites us to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Christians have the joy of basking in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross of Calvary. It is there that God's mercy and justice are of one accord. It is there that God's enemies are transformed into sons and daughters, and the Son of God is scorned and tormented as an enemy of God. It is there that sinners like David and you and me were made holy. As a result, Christians today have all the hope to not grow weary or faint-hearted in the raging battles against the enemies of God. Whether that be our own flesh, the world around us, or the schemes of the devil, nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ that has been poured out for us. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans eight thirty seven, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. More than conquerors. Not just conquerors, more than conquerors through him who loved us. Friends, do you find yourself crying out like David, though? How long? maybe you've been coming to church your whole life and you're like, that's great, that's the gospel, I believe that, but how long? How long? How long must I endure argument after argument with my spouse? How long must I endure the political divide, both inside but also outside the church? How long must I see the oppression of other human beings, whether that be friends with a different skin color or children in the womb? How long must I endure the temptation to engage in promiscuous sexual activity? How long, how long, how long is the cry of someone who has been transformed by God's grace? In fact, if you're not crying out how long this morning, I feel like that's, that's a diagnostic test. 
to know whether or not you know this God of grace. To live in the world as a Christian is to live in the tension of the already but not yet. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. It's not tribal. It's the cry of already washed by the blood of Jesus, but still held down by the vestiges of sin. It's the cry of both a sinner and a saint. It's the cry of seeing both the beauty and the brokenness in the world around us. You see, unlike David, though, unlike David, living on this side of the cross means that our worst enemy has been defeated. The, the, the war is won. It's over. Death no longer has any power over you. Sin no longer has any power over you. The devil no longer has any power over you. I feel like so often as Christians, we think of like our Christian lives as like some kind of Star Wars scene where you have like the good force and the bad force and the, the good force has to win and the bad force fights back. And like, no, <laughs> it's over. Let's live like it's over. Because th- everything that has power over you doesn't actually have power over you. Those are lies that we believe. You and me can live out of the reality that justice has been accomplished. Grace has been poured out. We do not need to, be, to grow weary of doing good. For students, it's the end of the semester. We don't need to grow weary of continually to sh- showing up in the lives of our friends, in the lives of those who might be new to something like RUF or new to campus or whatever it be. If you're not a student, we don't need to grow weary of continuing to show up after 23 years of marriage and loving our wives as Christ loves the church. If you're a single person, we don't need to grow weary of showing up to the workplace day in and day out and have the same person yell and scream at you for not doing your job, even though you're just like, I just want to be seen. I just want you to see that I'm working, I'm doing my best. You don't need to be weary. God is at work in you and through you today, even if you feel like a no-name servant. Even if you feel spiritually dry. If this text is true this morning, it changes every part about how the Christian should live. Your old self has died. It's dead. It's in the grave. It will never again come to life. You've been given a new identity in Christ Jesus. You've been given a new name. And that name is written in the book of life. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come before you. A lot of us, some of us, believing this to be true. I think most of us examining our inward lives and just yearning for more of it to be true. For you to not leave us where we are this morning for you to grow us and mature us, that we might not just drink in milk, but walk like adults, like those who are mature in Christ, like those who who actually not just believe this intellectually or theologically, nebulously, that we actually might live, though, like people who have had this sink into our very DNA. That we aren't just persons a part of this random church in Ann Arbor called Christ Church, but we are a body. We are a corporate body. We are one people of one accord with one baptism, with one Lord. And we are, we are excited. We are curious to see how you're at work, not only in us, but in our community, in Ann Arbor, at the University of Michigan. We know you're at work. 
question is how? And, and we thank you so much that we get the privilege of being a part of it. And so I, I pray for my friends. I pray for my brothers. I pray for my sisters, my family this morning. Lord, that you would give us more grace to actively live into our new selves. To not be like David. To, to, to not throw these temper tantrums and, and to get so lost and confused as to who we are. Would you send us Abigails? Would you send us friends? Would you send us loved ones? Would you send us maybe a no-name servant, someone random, to speak the truth, to show us, to display what's true about who you are and how you're at work in our lives? And for some of us, would that ultimately bring us to faith? Would that ultimately reveal for the first time the glory and the majesty and the transcendence of King Jesus, high and lifted up, see it at the right hand of the Father, is now to him that we come at the Lord's Supper. Be with us now. It's in your name we pray. Amen.